0: I met my best friend, Anne, in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in
1: 1988, and she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme, these books are great. Now, now we're all grown
0: In
2: Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing Big 15, Little Miss Stony Brook, dot dot dot, and Don.
1: Why is there an ellipsis in the title? I don't know. I think that's a stretch for like incorporating one of the babysitter's names into like the thematic arc of the book. <laughs> <With> a-
0: <laughs> I- yeah, I always really liked this title. Um I'm not sure I'm not sure why I can't defend it. I'm just saying that I liked it when I was a kid. It's I feel so like, ominous. Yeah, exactly. I kind of like that it's like there's this whole thing called Little Miss Stonybrook. And Don. Don like, is also there. Yeah. And Don yeah. is also there. I don't know.
2: She's behind the curtain.
0: I want it like really peaky peaky. Um I want to hear some one sentence summaries from you people. I'll I'll give you mine first. Uh, the BSC gets weirdly competitive while equating pageanting and child care, and Jeff leaves Connecticut.
2: Mm-hmm. hmm
1: I took a really different tack this time, and okay. mine is, pageants are stupid.
0: <laughs> fair. It's fair. That is How fair. How about you, Anne? <laughs>
2: um, admittedly, I totally forgot to write one, so...
0: <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> So what is it right now off the top of your head?
2: The BSC becomes what they don't want to be. They become pageant heads.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Thank you, Claudia, for that turn (laughs) of phrase. Pageant head. Oh, all right. Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total
0: individual
2: and I like health food.
0: I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart.
2: And I'm Anna Chicala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC-related, drop us a line at stuckinstoneybrook at gmail.com.
0: And I don't know about you, but the whole time I was reading this book, I was like, ooh, I can't wait to hear what Emily has to say about this book.
2: I know. I was like, did Emily, like, burn it? I does?
0: thought maybe Emily's eyes would set it on fire. The whole time I
1: was reading this book, I was like, ugh, God, Anne and Esme are going to make me talk so much this time. Mm-hmm that's what i was thinking about
0: okay before we make her do it and should we um should we give a little bit of a general summary for those not acquainted with the little miss stony brook pageant
2: i mean i think the title says it all what else is there to say okay okay really (laughs) well okay so there's a pageant in stony brook for little kids little girls Little, little girls, girls, only girls, only girls. And Don plays a main part in this, but the other babysitters get it, roped into it as well. And it incites a competition among them.
0: Yeah. I don't think they get roped into it. I think they rope themselves into it pretty quickly, this is um, true. but, but basically all of the original four, right? Stacy's in New York now, Um, Mal and Jesse think it's all garbage they're like our little feminist voices from the sidelines as the junior members being like this is disgusting what are you guys doing Um, and then the other four each end up coaching um, uh, one of the girls in the pageant so Dawn is working with Claire and Margot Pike Uh, Marianne is working with Mariah Perkins Claudia like strong arms Charlotte Johansson into entering <laughs> in a very bizarre way. That to me
1: was and the most unbelievable plot arc of the entire book. I was like, Claudia yeah. would never do that. And also Charlotte would never say yes. Like, what? Yeah. That whole yeah. thing. I was like, All yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess sense.
0: we're back in the super special suspension of reality universe, <laughs> but fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Christy's working with Karen, her stepsister. So and then meanwhile uh Jeff is getting worse and worse. Um as we've seen foreshadowing in previous books and this book ends with him actually moving back in with his dad in California.
1: Well, although it's the arc of him getting worse and worse is happening before, like at the very beginning mm-hmm. is kind of the apex of his, you know, he gets a call from the teacher who's like maybe Jeff needs to see a psychiatrist and and uh, Don Schaefer's mom, right? The Jeff and Don's mom, Sharon is like Actually, maybe we should think about sending him back to California. So most of the book is about them negotiating that prospect, not like him going off the deep end. But like, so Dawn's like freaking out about this move. And I don't know. This book, I was like, all of the characters seemed so out of character
2: to me. But they just get swept away by the pageant. I guess. I guess.
0: It just sweeps you away, Emily. Doesn't that happen Mm -hmm. to every girl?
2: But it's also perhaps just an extension of their um, competitive natures about babysitting. Which was also, like, why are they so competitive about babysitting?
1: Also, like, why, yeah, that's never been a thing before. And how did that get translated into this pageant thing? It's like, it's a very, I mean, we've talked about how sometimes their arguments and conflicts are, like, overwrought. And this one, I was like, I'm not buying it, guys. Sorry. Sorry.
0: Well, it all um, starts when Dr. Johansson asks for Claudia specifically. So Stacy has just moved away, and Charlotte knows that Claudia is Stacy's best friend, and Charlotte really misses Stacy. So the Johansons ask specifically if Claudia can babysit, mm-hmm. and everyone gets super bent out of shape about it because that breaks the club rule.
2: But even before that, Don is jealous. Yeah. Because Mallory and Jesse get like a formal ceremony oh, yeah. to induct them into the club. Sounds like I I I didn't get that, because you know why? Because Chrissy was jealous of me, because I was becoming a friend with Marianne. So I think I actually, that <laughs> what? Yeah.
0: I really liked um I I it I it was very telling to me that like da, you know as someone who's spending a lot of time with a Don and a Claudia, right? So, and someone who does a little pomp and circumstance in her life, like Christy is trying to do this induction ceremony and Claudia and Don think it's lame and they roll their eyes at each other. But at the same time, that's all Dawn really wants is an induction ceremony. So it's like this: she's trying to kind of bring it in and push it away at the same time. It's it's a little mock negative of her. Okay. And, I don't um, know what
1: <laughs> subtext you're trying to draw parallels to between our podcast and the Babysitter's Club, but I don't want an induction ceremony. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> the equivalent is, I don't want it.
0: <laughs> but it is mock negative uh, of her. You're correct. Yes. yes. <laughs> She doesn't actually hate it as much as she says. But Emily, tell us about pageants. Yes. So obviously the central feature of this book
1: from the title is the pageant. Um, But it's also the first time we hear the babysitters talk about sexism in the books. Um, And as you pointed out earlier, Esme, that kind of Mal and Jessie are sort of voices of – they're the feminist voices kind of – you know, they're the specter of feminism sort of haunting the rest of the girls and like all everything that all the drama that unfolds. And Mrs. Pike calls and asks Don specifically to coach Claire and Margot in the pageant for a reason. I don't know if it was explained or that I can't
0: remember. Because they live close. It was. Yeah. Oh, because they live close. Remember, yeah. Don lives so close to the Pikes. That's where Nikki was hiding. You don't so need so a she ride. She doesn't want to yeah. have to pick her up all the time.
1: Exactly. But because this thing has just happened with Charlotte and Claudia, everyone's kind of on edge. And then everyone's like, all right, well, I'm going to coach someone in this pageant as well. But initially, Mallory's like, oh, you're fucking kidding me. You have to do this pageant bullshit. It's going to be in my house. This is horrifying. And Jesse's like, yeah, that's some sexist nonsense. I think Claudia's the first one to say sexism, actually, though. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're reading a magazine in Claudia's room that mentions the pageant before they even get the call from Mrs. Pike and so Claudia's like oh a pageant that's kind of sexist and then they're like well maybe it could be fun so there were a bunch of things about this that I thought were really interesting one thing that was interesting to me commentary on sexism aside is that the conflict that unfolds and the kind of lessons that we learn throughout the course of preparing for the pageant and then like dealing with the fallout from it on the day of are actually not really about sexism they're about competition that like ultimately all the parents are like hey you can do this but just so you know like here's what you're risking right like there's going to be 15 girls who compete in this thing and the only one is going to win and everyone else is going to lose and so everything that they're like emotionally preparing the kids for is about losing the competition, not about, like, all the shit that Mallory and Jesse are really worried about. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was kind of weird. But I I was thinking about, like, what would have been the kind of feminist sensibility motivating, like, the dynamics of whether or not you can participate in something like this in the late 80s. And, like, the fact that the girls are talking about it as sexist is not surprising to me. I mean, you have you know, the like Miss America protest in 1968 was this very famous kind of like radical feminist um, protest against, you know, the like booby girl, like sexualization of like pageants in general. And this is where people get the image of feminists as kind of bra burners is coming from, right? They famously like set up a huge trash can outside of the Miss America pageant with a fire and we're burning things, not like bras, but actually like their degrees like women who had PhDs that were like I got a PhD in history and I didn't learn anything about the history of women so like this degree is fucking useless to me we're like burning their degrees right that like we women's history doesn't exist that like everything that we know about the world is circumscribed by and from the perspective of man man as the Mm -hmm. abstract universal you know subject of history but also men materially and historically and like and so that that famous protest is like you know, was a commentary on both the sexism of the pa- of the pageant itself and, like, of pageantry in general, right, the objectification of women, women as objects of just, you know, beauty, desire, um, all these uh, kinds of superficial things, but also a, a commentary on, like, the lack of attention to women as sort of substantive participants in society in other realms. So it's a as a protest against the pageant but also uh, it's symbolic of a broader kind of social problem
0: around women not having a, a role in all these other echelons of society. Guess how old Anna Martin was the year of the 1968 Miss America protest. 8? No, 11. 13. Oh, 13. 13. I was... Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah.
1: I was going to say uh, when I said 8 I meant 11 because of uh, Mallory and Jesse, and I was like, oh. "Oh, was she the Mallory and Jesse age or the, the babysitter's yeah. age?" And and Mallory and Jesse, when and when the girls are talking about the sexism of the pageant, they talk about it a bit in those ways, right? That like there's they're like, "Oh, the parading around of women in, you know, clothes and bathing suits is kind of horrifying. It assumes it flattens women to this thing, this like node object of something to be admired and then they talk a bit about the question round right that like oh oh there's actually a part of this of the competition where they're interested in like what the girls have to say or to think and then as soon as the babysitters start coaching the girls on giving nice answers about world global peace or whatever then Mallory and Jesse are like oh so they're not actually interested in what the girls have to say or like them as kind of intellectual entities or their the creativity they might have as children right because also they're children Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're like oh so even this one part of the competition that could be
0: cool is like fucking sexist um uh, now jesse do drop the same amount of f-bombs as emily does everybody it might be surprising to you because it's been a while but these were very edgy books (laughs) whatever you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah they they talk a lot about that specifically that they'll be taught that they have nothing to offer except looking cute and and being nice and being pretty and mal says that when john first takes the job mal says oh no my sisters my baby sisters they'll be contaminated they'll be brainwashed yeah
1: but it was interesting to me that like
0: what they learn in the end is not
1: necessarily about the sexism of the pageant Mm -hmm. they're like oh mean they do a bit they're like oh this was silly we like we fought about this for no reason other than some weird latent competition around how good of babysitters we are but they're not like oh fuck we fucked up these kids claudia is very concerned about that because but not because of the sexism of the pageant but because of the pressure and of, of pressuring charlotte who's like a super shy kid and so i was like i loved that there was a kind of spirit of budding feminist sensibility through the book but i was like oh they're but they're not like ultimate like what they take home at the mm. end of the day is not about that sexism and the kind of horribleness of it it's about the toxicity of that spirit of competition and like their own like their own egos kind of being thrust upon the girls that they were coaching
0: in right a sense. well and I also thought that there was a more sinister through line of judgmentalness as well from this. Oh similar God, to yeah, what we've seen, yeah, in the past of kind of bad girls, good girls. Now there's like real kids and pageant heads, which is the, you know, name that Claudia gives to Sabrina Bouvier, the ultimate, who's ultimately crowned Little Miss Stony Brook, of someone who's been trained to achieve this way. And this is obviously still a stereotype we have. And you know, winning in a pageant. Anybody who's seen. Uh, episode of America's Next Top Model knows that being a, in a pageant is very different from being a model, right? And there's, right. we have a lot of ideas about this in our coach, culture and, you know, pageants are their own thing. And so people are taught to act in a certain way if they are going to be on a pageant circuit. But this seemed to me extremely judgmental of Sabrina and extremely like, well, the kids we care about and we care for are real cool kids and we don't want them to be robots. And, and again, not interrogating the larger sexist context, but just like, well, we don't want to be like her. Instead Absolutely. of like why has she been rewarded for being like that? And why is that the winning thing for a pageant? And is this whole thing flawed? And is she just a much as much of um, you know, a product of the different right. reinforcers in that sexist environment?
1: Yeah, and then like when when they're in the pageant ultimately and she wins and the babysitter's like she wasn't even that talented she's not even that pretty it's like she's fucking eight like what the hell is wrong with you like you I don't know it's yeah I thought that was really interesting because there's it seemed to me like there was a bit of a gap in kind of execution of that like feminine budding feminist sensibility like I wanted them to have had a little bit more space for Sabrina right to like have understood that like Margot and Claire parading around in their bedroom in wanting to wear a bathing suit to the show was as much a a function of the things that Sabrina had been a product of or been subject to as that. And that like that there there was like a continuum of experiences that are all rooted in like a broader social expectation that like this is all this is why this is where women derive social value. Right. So I thought that was really interesting.
0: And I, I, I think as someone for, and again, similar to Christie's Big Day, I don't know why I liked this book so much as a kid, but both my copy and Anne's copy are totally falling apart. And um, you may have contributed to that some, Emily, but my guess is it's mostly me. Um, but I, I think Anna Martin wants to have it both ways, right? She wants to be able to recognize the the serious problems with it and also acknowledge that it could still be fun and it could still be appealing. And I think she shows us that through the range of the girls interacting with it, right? From someone like Charlotte, who is sort of coerced to like a Mariah who is a performer, right? And mm-hmm. will probably do some kind of performing someday and ha- is truly talented, quote unquote. Um Versus a Karen who's just into giving the whole thing a try, but is not going to be able to be groomed to to act in the way that's appropriate to win a pageant, Um, and kind of showing us the the parts of the the pageantry of it that are fun. Yeah. Um, Whereas now I feel like if this if she was writing this book now, it would be like the BSC protests the Little Miss Stony Brook pageant. I don't think it would play out the way it did.
1: So the last kind of like bullet point I had when I was organizing my thoughts around the different ways that sexism gets treated in this book was i think aside from kind of what the ultimate lesson is like the fact that the girls name sexism as a thing for the first time and kind of what they understand that to be and how that weighs on them um i think what the book is asking is this question of like are sexist things always bad Mm -hmm. which is like a different way of saying like can sexist things still be fun right so it's like can i understand that like High heels and lipstick are, you know, patriarchal constructs or, like, participate are, – are part of a patriarchal construct of, like, what an ideal woman is and still like to dress up and, like, have a good time dressing up or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And there's different iterations of this. I mean, we talked about this last time with, like, you know, the promise of kind of, like, liberal feminism. Like, can we live on, in a society that was – or can we, like, live – according to the values of a society that at its root was exploitative, colonial and all of these things and can like freedom and equality still kind of make good on their promises. And then we like, there's a little bit of this in the sort of critique of capitalist vein. Like, can I understand that capitalism is like ravaging the planet and like still derive satisfaction out of my like consumer choices or something? Like, like do I have to feel mm-hmm. guilty every time I buy something? And like, the I I think that like, this is a different iteration or version of that question, right? That like, can we participate in something that has sexist roots and that is clearly like drawing on sexist tropes and exists in like deeply patriarchal contexts and like have fun in it. And I think what the, the lesson the girls learn is like, yes, you can, you can have fun as long as you don't like succumb too much to the competition of it. And then like, but the thing itself is sort of not the problem it's like how seriously we take it mm. which like I don't know if that's where I would fall <laughs> on yeah. on that on answering that question or those sets of questions but yeah there's a,
2: a lot in here <laughs> yeah well I think it's interesting that Anna Martin the way she wrote the pageant and like you know how we said oh she, you know the girl who won Sabrina she like she wasn't that pretty anyway which is Bad thing to say, but also maybe Anna Martin is trying to get up across the point that pageants aren't all about being pretty because when the babysitters are all coaching their respective you know kids, they don't ever really talk about what they look like. It's very focused on like what they're doing, like their quote unquote talents or you know, what they're going to be performing or saying at the pageant. If there's not, I think there was actually they. There's a really deep emphasis on what they look like throughout the whole book,
0: except for the one conversation between Charlotte and Claudia which I thought was really interesting. So at the end of the Charlotte Claudia chapter, where Claudia first kind of Mm -hmm. introduces the idea to Charlotte and to Claudia's credit, I don't think it was her plan. Like they had gone to Claudia's house so that Charlotte could call Stacy on Claudia's phone line. And then the Stony Brook news was there with the article. And then Claudia gets the idea. It wasn't like she was like plotting the whole time, but Charlotte says, I don't know. See, the thing is I'm not pretty. Mm -hmm. And Claudia says, but being pretty isn't the point. It really isn't. You have to have poise and talent and be smart. And then Charlotte is sort of focusing on this and saying, you have to be pretty, too. I know you do. And then Claudia like sits for a minute with this idea of like, well, actually, I do think Charlotte is pretty, but I know that if I just say that, we're just going to get in this circle. And if people don't believe it and you just tell them, Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually work. And so... Then she leaves with this, like, this isn't just a beauty show, Shar, I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. And it's this really interesting kind of, you know, Don writes about her, her thinking about whether or not she should try to convince her um, and, and landing on that that's not her role in that moment. Mm-hmm. I, I do think there's a general de-emphasis of it, but it's still in the background and it's still even, you know, in the minds of the eight-year-old's. Yeah. clear that that's what the expectation is from having seen Miss America on television. So it's, you know, it's still the, the water they're swimming in, so to speak.
1: And I think they find it kind of unjust, ultimately, that Sabrina wins. And like her saying them when they say she's not that pretty, it's not like, oh, this is cool that a girl who's not that pretty can win it's like oh she shouldn't have won she's not even pretty anyway it just kind of like reifies the idea that mm-hmm. like the winner should be pretty <laughs> right in a sense um
0: I, did they really say she's not that pretty oh yeah i remember her saying that she's not talented no they, they said say both. she's not
2: pretty okay um but it's also just funny that adam martin kind of sneaks in those asides like when who was it that said don wasn't that pretty Mary <laughs> marianne <laughs>
0: Yeah, I to me, it felt like it was more about the difference between her, you know, warbling moon river in an evening gown versus Mariah's actually talented talent. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds like Mariah gave a good answer to the thinking part, too. And so yeah. did Sabrina. So all else being legal, equal, it should have been Mariah. But again, that was the, it was partly because of that, like, it's a real kid versus a pageant kid, Right. you know, because Mariah is more genuine that she should she mm-hmm. should win
2: i mean margo margo uh, clearly had the best talent
0: oh yeah i'm sorry can we pause just to talk <laughs> about the pike girl talents because they're both so good and i know we've talked before about like how this 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 book had a lot of babysitting gals but in service of the main plot but there's a lot of babysitting um and how when i read these with my kids they crack up at things and i forgot like how laugh out loud funny this book is <laughs> in terms of their two talents. And <laughs> if I went to a children's beauty show, which I would not, but if I did and Claire and Marco Pike came onto the stage with these acts, I would give them standing ovations. Like I would be so excited.
2: I mean, peeling a banana with your feet. Come
1: on. It's foul <laughs> and hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Anne can do it.
2: I, can, I, I could I can do, do lots it. of things with her feet. Apparently
1: <laughs> she could also do um, okay. three dances simultaneously. Wait, I found where Dawn says it and Dawn says it and she says it out loud to the other girls. It's when we get the introduction of the term pageant head on page 120. Um, Claudia whispers to Dawn, do you know what that was a pageant head? That's what a poor kid who gets roped into any beauty contest or pageant that comes along. Her whole life is one big smile. She's not that pretty. I pointed out. And maybe not very talented, added Claudia, but she knows pageants. <laughs> and this is before they even see, like, this is when Sabrina, this is when Sabrina is trying to help Claire and Margot. Like, Sabrina walks over and is like, oh, I know how you can get rid of the pageant jitters forever. Like, yeah. let me tell you. And then yeah. Claudia's like, oh, that's a pageant head. And Don's like, she's not even pretty.
2: Damn, that <laughs> is pretty, that's pretty bitchy to
0: like an eight-year-old is this this though is this kind of a backdoor not not that this is better um and is this sort of a backdoor indictment of Mrs. Bouvier right because I feel like this goes back to like their thoughts about Mrs. Prezioso and kind of the right the good kind of moms and the bad kind of moms and Mm -hmm. you know it, it it has like a subtext about stage mothers and um you know because the very next line that you didn't read claudia says this girl knows pageants or her mother does and they know what judge is like
1: yeah but again i think it's that thing where like we have we we're starting to lay the groundwork for like an actual substantive critique of how these things play out structurally and then like the individual girls who are the bearers of them get held a responsible for it so like right so like Sabrina is kind of the bad guy even though like right like she's not that pretty um even though we we have the tools to see that like
0: it's not her fault (laughs) like right um well and you could argue that it's not even Mrs. Bouvier's fault right she's also raised in the same patriarchy, right been completely
1: socialized to believe that like this is how she's gonna help her daughter like find self-worth in the world or like whatever the fuck reason yeah 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 um, it's funny that you mentioned the good mom, bad mom thing, 'cause there we ha we get a parenthetical in this book that closes a chapter where it dawns like, and my mom is a my mom is a good mom, mostly. But like the mostly joke is I think about her absent mindedness. But it's like and then we have that weird moment where they're like, Oh, you're more like my sister and I'm like mm-hmm. hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: we're supposed weird. to learn from that.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, but you didn't uh, say Claire's talent. Claire's talent is almost as good as Margot's.
2: Oh, singing the Popeye song?
0: Yeah. <laughs> singing the foul Popeye song about eating worms and germs. It's so good. Yeah. And I like her outfit. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and she, like, Dawn alludes to, like, her sailor's hornpipe dance. I made a note of that because I was like, what is that? It's actually a dance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So good. It's so good.
2: What would your guys' talent be?
1: I would never participate in a talent show
2: i would be peeling a banana with my feet
0: (laughs) (laughs) but what would you recite would you recite like butterfly by weezer while you did that's that would
2: be very disturbing (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: that's why i thought it would be good
2: i would sing "Yankee doodle dandy
0: oh my god so good (sighs) yeah all right um yeah. And as now, we would or, like, like when I was eight. As we would
2: memorize things. Yeah. And then totally. like somehow like memorize things and then come back to the pageant in five years and recompete and then say the thing she said five years ago, probably.
1: I feel like this is a reference to something I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't I don't either, Emily. I don't know what she's talking
1: about. She's about to pull out some old shit you forgot as we <laughs>
0: Wait, is the talent is the talent when I'm eight or when I'm forty two? When you're eight. Oh yeah, I feel like I was still very scared of things when I was eight. I was more Charlatte than than anything. So okay, I what about forty two, Charlotte?
2: What about forty two?
0: <laughs> I would uh do a, do a podcast oh. I'm on stage. Well. <laughs> Wait,
1: I know if you guys are doing a co talent, it's uh Anne.
0: Uh. Skates between Esme's legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we could do a roller skating dance yeah. to like a 90s song. Because we have done
2: that before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: the only, the one other thing that has nothing to do with sexism or Miss America that I thought was really weird in this book is that there's two kind of weird like references to crime and jail in the magazine where the Miss America pageant is, or Miss America, the
0: Whatever, Miss Stony Brook pageant is announced. I feel like you're rounding up the Stony Brook news to a magazine. I think it's like a two-page free (laughs) weekly. It's like a children's flyer for news or something. Um, (laughs) There's apparently like
1: a recurring column that everyone's into called Crime Watch, where you like see Mm -hmm. that local crime, but it's like, they're like, oh, it's so interesting to know like who's stealing what? Like what? That was very Um, weird.
0: Well, they were into and, that back in uh, Claudia and the Phantom phone calls. They've always been Crime watch I fans. I know.
1: Um, and then when Jeff – when they get the call initially from Jeff and they're talking about Jeff going home, he makes some dawn surprise because he has a moment – displays a moment of maturity where before Mrs. Schaefer can get, like, mad at him for what he did at school, he's like, look, I'm going to do something – and I like, there's this thing inside of me that I can't, whatever. And like, I need to go home. And then he makes some quip, like, I don't want to end up in jail. And they're all like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Like, of course, Jeff's not going to jail. And like, <laughs> like they laugh. I was like, what? Oh, God. Because like, he, if he was not like a white kid in fucking suburban Connecticut and he was suffering from, I mean, this is, I thought this, I was saving this as a segue to you as that, like, mm. you know, if he was not like a white kid in an affluent, connecticut suburb and those things were happening like he he could have gone to jail and like things could Mm -hmm. have been really really bad for him and i was like oh god how like What is, what, how nice that you can make that sweet little quip and it's like a a fun joke. Of course we're not going to,
0: we're not, Jeff's not going to jail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He had given Jerry Haney a couple of black eyes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and look, here's the thing, similar to like, what would I have wanted to happen to Alan Gray back in book two? Like, we don't want any 10 year old who's punching other 10 year olds to go to jail. Right. Of course not. So uh, like, I, like, I understand that that's, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, you guys, Emily didn't understand that. I had to make that clear. Um. <laughs> no, but I think that, you know, not that this is good, but these books are operating in a world in, you know, that again, it's 1988, 89 here. It's, it's a colorblind lens. And so I don't think Anna Martin's attempting to say that. I think she's saying like, no, like it would be funny to send any 10 year old to jail. He's obviously going through something, but right. like, to your point, it makes a lot of sense. I, so what do you guys think Jeff is going through? I have some, lots of ideas. Getting in lots of the fights, he's.
2: Yeah, physical fights. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he seems depressed to me, but it's weird because Dawn is generally so empathetic and like so good at seeing people's, like taking kind of generous stock of people's emotional state and like forgiving them for things that they might not have meant to do. And she like cannot understand Jeff and she like thinks he's being really selfish. Um, And I understand that part of that is motivated by her own desire to, like, have the family together, right? Like, she's also suffering from having this kind of – her world, you know, like, ruptured a bit. But, like, she's really harsh with him. And he – I think it was really impressive to see how Anna Martin – and I don't know how realistic it is that – how old is he supposed to be? Ten. Ten. Like, a ten-year-old boy could narrate that internal experience so well but i i was like oh wow i like I, that makes sense to me as a person <laughs> who sometimes right. like can't turn the you know stove off or whatever the metaphor don helps him use yeah. and like i was like oh i think that's like that makes a lot of sense and that she it took her i I mean even at the end of the book i feel like she's not really ready to to see that 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 like to see that for what it is and she still kind of wants to hold him responsible for like not loving her enough or something.
0: Oh man, you just named like eight layers here that I'm getting all excited about that. that I think she did a really, really good job of portraying. So Mm -hmm. one ding, ding, ding. I think you're right. I think Jeff is depressed. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that first, and then we'll talk about Dawn's reaction and how our emotions cloud our ability to understand other people's emotions, which happens to everybody. That's how emotions work. So Um, Jeff is depressed. I I think he does meet criteria for clinical depression. Um, And if I was going to see Jeff in my practice, I would code it as something called adjustment disorder. And so we have this DSM diagnosis called adjustment disorder that basically indicates that you have, you know, depression or anxiety or what are called conduct symptoms, which are basically like behavior problems um, Mm -hmm. because of something that has happened in your life. And so there's this major life change that happens to Jeff where his parents get divorced and then he moves across the country. And that's when the symptoms start, you know, shortly following that. Like he makes an okay transition right in the beginning and then things kind of start to fall apart. Um, And so the reason to code that as an adjustment disorder as opposed to just major depressive disorder is that it helps acknowledge that there may have been this large trigger in the environment. And then if that trigger is resolved and those symptoms don't resolve, then we would sort of change our mind and start calling it major depressive disorder.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And I think that that makes the most sense for him. And I think there's a couple of reasons why Don has a hard time giving him empathy. So it is very common for children that they're, Cardinal symptom of depression is not depressed mood or sadness or as an adult, you know, laying in bed all day, crying a lot, not being able to get up, but that the number one symptom is anger. and I feel
1: attacked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> aggression, sometimes physical aggression um, and irritability. And just, you know, you see that in the dinner conversations they have with Jeff in the beginning of the book, right, where he's just pissy and he like gets mad at Sharon because she has an ink stain on her shirt and he's just like angry all the time and he doesn't understand it. That's a very common manifestation of depression, even into adolescence, um, but particularly for young kids. And unfortunately, that often means that it's you know passed over not diagnosed and that kids don't get treatment that they need because people are like well he's just so mad and uh, you know parents often call asking for help with anger problems and not understanding that it's depression parents that have had depression themselves and know that they are you know kind of genetic contributors and you know would want to help if the kid looked kind of classically depressed but because they're angry they're like I don't understand where this is coming from and they don't know how to respond so i thought that that was very realistic um, how she portrayed his symptoms over the course of time and, um, and how he sort of comes to understand them. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, he's probably more insightful than the average 10 year old boy, but with like a sister like Dawn and a mom like Sharon, I wasn't surprised that he could come up with that metaphor and sort of explain that he, he's trying, you know, and he still can't fix it. He can't stop those emotions from coming. Um, which is basically what depression is. It's too much, too much, too many, whether it's sad or irritable. Um, and it's like both too much and too little, right? Either you sleep too much or you can't sleep or, you, you know, you're no longer taking pleasure in things you take pleasure of. You have too much guilt when you haven't done anything wrong. And it's this flood of um, either irritability and anger or sadness. Um, in terms of your question of why Dawn can't get there, um, I really think you hit the nail on the head is that she's having too many of her own emotions. And I often, you know, working with my clients and working with parents, I think about and talk about like once your emotions are really strong and come on board, it's like you've had a couple drinks. They cloud your vision. Like you can't be as empathetic toward other people when you have your own big emotions about a thing it's just really hard to do. So for a long time, you know, my my specialty is borderline personality disorder who's pe- who are people that have really big emotions in every category, you know, not just sadness or anger. For a long time in the literature, people thought that people with borderline personality disorder lacked empathy because mm. they so often had their own big emotions that when your emotions are really big, it's hard to see someone else's emotions that's in front of you. When in fact it's the opposite when people with BPD are not dysregulated they actually are much more empathic than the average person because they have Mm -hmm. this huge understanding of emotions but that gets kind of turned off when your own emotions are really big Mm -hmm. and so I think you're exactly right it's just Don can't Don can't see that I'm sure people you guys have experienced this when it's something that's going on in your own life it's really hard to see the other person's point of view but if it's like a friend's Partner who's acting a certain way, you can be like, "Oh, but don't you think he blah blah blah?" And if mm-hmm. it's your partner, you're like, "What are you talking about?" You know. So I think that, um, I think that that's what's going on mm-hmm. there with Dawn.
1: Do Do you think that, like, I don't know, like, are we getting is Dawn struggling with adjusting in a way that she hasn't like let on, and like, are we going to see more of that, or is this just like it? O- it's only coming up
0: because Jeff is struggling with it so much. And you gave a little smile. I'm curious to see what you think about that before I answer.
2: Oh, I was just thinking how she gets her own spinoff series. <laughs>
0: Eventually. Eventually yeah. Yeah. I mean Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. I think it's both. I think mm-hmm. she's, you know, there's a couple places where she's like, I mean, I would never do that. I would never leave my mom like that. Like she's she's decided that her job is to take care of her mom and to be there. And so she can't let herself entertain those thoughts of missing California and wanting to go back. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an extra layer of anger at Jeff because he, you know, really can't help but entertain those thoughts. And so she she's both kind of like redoubles her commitment to stay in Connecticut, but I think also is envious.
1: Yeah. Dude, I identified in that moment. She's like, I would never. I'm like, God, that's an... Ex- uh- feeling i have all the time when i'm frustrated with the way people react to something is like i would never react to somebody that i care about like that like that but it's like not everybody reacts in the same way (laughs) it's
2: Mm -hmm. like hard to have
1: that (laughs) yeah have that to like have space for somebody to react in a way that you wouldn't
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's really hard it's really hard But, you know, back to that kind of protection of Sharon, the other thing that really jumped out to me psychologically in this book was this idea, um, you know, because Dawn is able to maintain her empathy and insight for her mom
2: during Mm -hmm.
0: this and this idea that Sharon feels like a failure for not being able to make Jeff happy in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, And that part really broke my heart, again, as someone that works with parents. And I think, you know, it. There's sort of two pieces about it that I found interesting. One is I don't think that's I don't see that talked a lot about in kids fiction that sort mm-hmm. of perspective taking of the parent of like she must feel so bad and she must feel like she failed him. And I know that that's not true, but that's probably how she's thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was a really nice just treatment of that. But we also have a really nasty history in psychology and psychiatry of blaming parents for everything psychology. that's wrong with kids yeah yeah oh and particularly mothers right yeah. to the to the point of things like you know people said that autism was caused by refrigerator mothers which is you know a mother that was cold and so that's why the kids had no emotional reciprocity I Wait, mean it's really you look this at the 50s, is so interesting
1: then that like that that the book is so has so much room for Sharon but in the case of Sabrina, you know, pageant head, like where we have no problem blaming her mom. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Huh. Well, and I think that's about how close we are to the character, right? Right, right. Um and it absolutely is interesting that they exist in the same, you know, 140 pages or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just thought that that was really nice because uh, you know, Sharon absolutely, you know, look parents feel guilty for everything bad that happens to their children, even if it has nothing to do with them. That's like part of being a parent. Um, and so of course Sharon's going to feel like, well, I wasn't enough and this was a mistake and I shouldn't have brought him here. And, um, I'm sure she's dealing with a ton of fallout from the divorce and, and emotional fallout, um, from the decisions she's made. And so I really liked that Don highlighted that and, um, they didn't, you know, say outright but you know we when you have biological children there's genetic contributions and then there's not a lot else you can do often. You know, there's things that you can actively do to try to, you know, miserably create psychopathology but but oftentimes what we find in the literature is if you're a quote-unquote good enough parent, which Sharon certainly is, then a lot of it is chance. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't think there would have been any way to predict that Jeff would have reacted in this really terrible way to the move um so i just thought that that was nice that they highlighted it um and that that's something that you know i think mental health needs to continue to do more to address for parents i spend a lot of my time sort of trying to magically lift blame that parents put on themselves for the misery their kids are in off of them so that they can also be more effective at helping their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you're stuck in your own emotions of guilt and blame, then you can't actually be there to help your kids climb out of that hole, whatever it is. Um, So I think Sharon did an admirable job of doing that. I think she did, as she says to Don, like sometimes the important things in life are really, really hard and aren't how you want them to be, but you still have to do them. Um, and I think she did a lovely job of that. But I thought that that description of her own process was really good. Mm-hmm. Oh, man.
2: Mm-hmm. Steve, yeah, roller coaster. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and do you have something more fun to talk about?
2: <laughs> I, I think help. I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, before I get into uh, my main thing, there were a couple of things I wanted to point out in the book that are just more random. Uh, Great. One of them being of that. Um when Dawn is describing all the members in the beginning of the book as they do, and she starts to talk about Mallory and Jesse, she says something like, Mallory and Jesse are a lot alike, except Jessie's black. And I was like, Okay, like that's a weird statement <laughs> to make. Like, as if the only thing different about this <laughs> is that Jesse is black and Mallory is not. Mm-hmm. Well, and
1: like not think, not thinking about like what that difference might mean and like what else it
2: comes with, yeah. right? <laughs> just yeah. like it was yeah. just like it was just like really thrown out there and just like left there to hang, kind of.
0: Buckle up, girls! I think we get to hear that about forty-five more times. Oh, Christ!
2: <laughs> um, and then also, gotta, gotta get it in there somehow, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, they talk about um, in the beginning of the book, also where. Watson and Christy's mom go to an auction to buy a birdbath.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wait, I have a question for both of you. Does the birdbath reappear? Because I vividly remember the like that there was a birdbath. And when I read this book, I was like, did I remember that from this book? Or does it have like something
0: some other significance <laughs> I, later on? I I don't what? know. I remembered it from this book. Do you genuinely not know,
1: or you're just fucking with me?
0: no I genuinely
1: don't I don't know, know. okay <laughs> okay fine
2: <laughs> but like what kind of bird bath is this like... an
1: expensive one you buy at an auction
0: <laughs> yeah I assumed like one of those like stone ones like on a little pedestal I mean why not an like...
1: auction was it like an estate sale like somebody <laughs> That's died
0: what I think. yeah oh. I assumed it was an estate sale do you remember the bird bath that my dad made in our front yard either of you it was with like a round piece of tin and like one piece of wood. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. I don't remember, remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was in the front yard through the, all of the eighties and most of the nineties. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll have to have my mom yeah. send a picture. I need yeah. a photo was, of this. It, it, it did not. It did not need to come from an auction. It was like a <laughs> Jan Lundahl special. Yeah,
2: I mean, I definitely would have remembered it. I was over at your house a lot in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, it
0: was there. It was like. Near the swing, huh?
2: Okay, need a picture. <laughs> Listeners will post a photo of this bird bath on Instagram. Don't worry. It's <laughs> um, a bold claim. <laughs> yeah. So um, we've talked about in the past a lot about Anna Martin's pop culture references and how sometimes they're real and how sometimes they're not. Like we we're talking about the wandering frog people. And how that was maybe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it's kind of a stretch there. In this book, she pretty much alludes to Cabbage Patch Kid dolls, although she just calls them Cabbage Patch dolls. She doesn't have the kids on it, but obviously they're Cabbage Patch Kid dolls. So th- th- she brings it up a few times when, uh, when, in reference to Claire, about how, like, you better train Claire for her answers at the pageant because she's just going to say she's going to say a Cabbage Patch doll from the fire or something like that. And it comes up again a few times. So I was just thinking about how big Cabbage Patch Kid dolls were in the 80s. Like they were like Emily, you probably maybe you remember from the, from the 90s version of the Cabbage Patch Kid dolls, but. It's not the same. Not the same.
0: They, they had moved on well, to American Girl by then. But we had Cabbage Patch Kid dolls. Yeah, but were you like, uh, like I remember screaming and like crying when I got one for my birthday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like no. They, they couldn't keep them in stores. Rabina Luella, that was my Cabbage Patch Kid. What was yours name, Dan? I don't remember. Oh come on! I had like
2: four of them though. So this is what I—I I don't remember anything as it remembers, which is why it's her talent at the pageant.
0: Oh, remembering, good, good <laughs> remembering callback, things, call back. My second one was a boy baby and his name was Guy Jules. He was like French.
2: Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah. I mean, you don't remember
2: any of the names? No. Okay.
0: They came named. They
2: came named. I mean, they were such a huge thing. Like there there's like footage on YouTube. You can find of parents literally fighting like each other, like at Toys R Us. Knock you out. Like I've read stories of like people, like, getting their leg broken and like a stampede going to try to get these dolls. Um, but they were just so huge. And I was like, Oh, that's into like, of course, Anna Martin, like she probably wrote this book in like 86 or 87. This book came in 88, but you know, it's pretty much at the height of Cabbage Patch, like the Cabbage Patch craze. So I kind of started looking into it, thinking I would just get some facts about, this many Cabbage Patch Kids were sold or like, you know, this is how much money it made or like some facts like that. But then I, I like started reading about the, the origin story of the Cabbage Patch Kid doll. And I was like, Whoa, this is, I never knew about this. So, um, okay. So they were first released, you know, mass produced as we know them in 1983 by Coleco, which is a toy manufacturer. Um, and, you know, every Cabbage Patch Kid doll came with, like, a birth certificate and it had on its butt sign Xavier Roberts. And I just thought, honestly, Xavier Roberts was some fictional character. But apparently it is, like, the guy who, quote-unquote, invented the Cabbage Patch Kid doll.
0: No, he, yeah, he was a real dude. He was a real dude. Oh, it was a signature.
2: It was a signature, yeah. Um. So I'm not going to get into, like the the fictional Cabbage Patch Kids story, like, you know, they're kind of like fantasy origins and stuff. But Xavier Roberts, the guy, he was um, from rural Georgia and it was like a town called Cleveland. And his mom, I guess, always had this interest in crafts and arts and he kind of just was interested in crafts and arts also. And when he became older, he ended up owning some, like a gift store in Georgia. And he would go to all these craft fairs in southeastern US and go, look for things to sell, like unusual things to sell in his store. So, one of these craft fairs in, in Louisville. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, no. In 1976, he met a Wait, woman. Is there a conspiracy afoot? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Logan is responsible. Logan's
0: family works for. Yeah. It's, Logan's it's
2: completely- dad is the. Xavier Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he met a woman at one of these craft fairs in Louisville. Her name is Martha Nelson Thomas. And she had attended the Louisville School of Art. And she was very interested and known for her soft sculpture creations. And this was kind of like the art form that she was really known for. And at this craft fair, she was selling her handmade dolls called Doll Babies. That you didn't buy, you adopted them. And they came with a letter from Martha and like a letter from the doll baby that said her name, and like what she liked and all this stuff. Um, and Wait, Xavier... I have a question. Mm-hmm. When you adopt them, do you
1: still pay for them? I think you still pay for them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's
0: adoption fees. Their adoption. Adoption fees. fees okay, yes. but you. Okay. Okay. I mean, it was just so Xavier ca- Roberts just stole all this shit from this woman. Is that the upshot of this?
2: Yes. So Xavier was like, Oh, I really like these dolls. And he asked her if he could, you know, he's like, I want to buy some. I want to sell them in my store. And she was like, Okay, like, sure. Um, and Martha is like, This really, she's just like an artist. She's really, doesn't like, didn't want to do anything commercial. She really, like, loved these dolls. And she really just did it because she wanted to make kids and people happy. It was like an extension- you know, as an artist, it's like an extension of her. So they became very popular. And at some point, Martha was like, wasn't into it. She was just like, You're these are you're selling these for way too much money. I'm uncomfortable with this. And she basically stopped selling them. And he was like upset. And he said, Well, I'm gonna continue selling these, whether you like it or not essentially. So, that's what he Capitalism. did. He basically um, ripped her off and he started making dolls. And, like, if you look, I mean, I can, I'll put links up to this in the episode link, but her dolls look exactly like How to Trash Kid dolls. <gasps> like, exactly. Um, and then he started making them and he called them little people. And they were basically a, an exact copy of doll
0: babies. Okay. both both of those names are terrible.
2: They're both horrible.
0: <laughs> um, Emily's making the strongest disgust based <laughs> maybe we've seen the whole series so far about both doll babies and little people. Why you just call bad. them little
1: baby doll people? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, instead they call them Cabbage Patch Kids, which is also very strange. So this was, okay, so he started making little people in the late 70s and um they began they get started getting very popular as little people
0: <laughs> emily and are both so mad we're so mad at, right. at capitalism and at ideas getting stolen
2: uh, again anyway so in 1982 he licensed them to coleco and coleco coleco sorry coleco and i live with a toy collector okay. and he re he <laughs> rebranded them as Cabbage patch kid dolls but so they were released in nineteen eighty three, but in nineteen seventy nine, Martha actually filed like tr- like a lawsuit against him, and it didn't really get settled until nineteen eighty five, um, and they settled out of court for like an undisclosed amount of money. But she was like happy oh. about it. Um, basically, part of it was that he had to admit that he took inspiration from her, um, but you know, I I watched this like fifteen minute. Vice documentary on this, where they interviewed her friends and also her, her husband. She, her, she died in like 19, in the 1990s, I think. um, They were just like, Martha was just thought of the earth woman. She was an artist. She didn't care about money. Um, She like hated that her idea was like this crazy mass produced, overpriced thing that was being sold to children like she really really felt horrible about that because that was like everything she was against um Mm -hmm. and then there's like all these clips of like xavier roberts being interviewed where he's talking about how he thought of the idea and how like he just came to him one day and like i'm just really interested in this self-sculpture kind of doll and all this stuff um and sexism he, like, li- i know and yeah. he lived in this he lived in this crazy house that they showed it's like it has three rooms he had cabbage patch graceland yeah he had like a a chauffeur limousine all the uh, his second call and like all this crazy stuff and his actually her friend in that documentary said cabbage patch kid dolls are the worst of capitalism
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So
2: it's interesting. I just love the yeah. idea
1: that this guy's like, I'm going to get rich, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rip off this woman's baby doll idea. and Doll babies. <laughs> doll babies. I'm going to make so many little people doll babies that I can ha- hire myself a limo chauffeur to chauffeur around me and my little people doll babies, or whatever the fuck they're called. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that- wow.
2: I was like, wow, I never knew that. I mean I would that never know that as a kid. Ride. But and you're
1: taking me on so
2: many journeys on
1: this podcast.
2: <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting this dark side to the cabbage patch kid dolls, but I mean I guess it... should we be surprised at this point? <laughs> no, I guess. Root bear barrels, I mean yeah. cabbage patch kid yeah. dolls. But it's but then I just started thinking about these weird dolls that why how did these dolls become so popular? Um because they're kind of, they're, they're kind of ugly cute, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole story about adopting them, like was really appealing to little kids. I mean, I know it was for me, mm-hmm. like it felt cool to get this thing and it comes with this birth certificate and they seem, well, they seem so like each doll seems so unique.
0: Right. hmm That was exactly what it was. They all Mm -hmm. had different clothes. They all had and they had a really sophisticated production structure. I don't know how how their supply lines looked. But like when you went to the store, if the store had any left, there were five of them that didn't look anything alike. Right. right, and so they were all different. You couldn't no one else had the same one as mm-hmm. you. They didn't have the same clothes as you. They all had a different name mm-hmm. that they came with, and so you could create this different backstory and mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what it was. I think that part was really, really smart,
2: right, and she also saw that from Martha, like her yeah. whole thing was they were all unique, but clearly, interestingly, like in nineteen eighty four um Martha came up, I forget what it was called, but I think it's something like baby doll kits or something like that but it was basically you could buy the parts to make your own mm. cabbage patch kit doll um and her thing was like you can you can make this with your own hands and like love and give it to your child it's cheaper than a cabbage patch kit doll but like and you it basically looked like a cabbage patch kit doll but it obviously didn't do very well because at that point In 1985, all kids wanted was, you know, the box from Toys R Us.
0: So my mom did that. Wait, really? I (laughs) don't know if it was Martha's kit, but do you remember my weird redheaded cabbage patch doll? Oh, my God. I think I named her Tina. I had her before my real cabbage patch doll. And I... Probably broke my mother's heart. I was disappointed because it wasn't Mm -hmm. a real Cabbage Patch Kid, and the Altamiranos had like six real Cabbage Patch Kids, and I didn't have one. I don't know. I would love to know if it was Martha's actual kit that is lost to time. My mom, my mom and I, but she will not remember where she got the kit, but it was one that she made.
2: Oh wow! I'm gonna send you the link of the thing of the package. Okay, yeah. And maybe your mom in my because you would buy the head, and then Mm -hmm. you would buy like a pre-stitched body that you would stuff. And kind mm-hmm. of, like, then you would, like, choose your clothes and stuff. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah.
1: That's
0: wow. weird. That's weird. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it turns out I don't remember Cabbage Patch Kids, so. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. how different could they
0: really be? How many were made? I mean, that's what I said. I think they had a really clever structure for right. making them different where
2: they sent They them, did. Right? I think in an article they uh, had some sort of, like, production where they, they could, like, mix and match certain things to make sure that there are a right. lot of different iterations of them. But, but I, I, I mean,
0: yeah, every girl, every girl and a lot of boys had them. And I don't remember ever seeing another one that looked anything like mine. So like, didn't have the same kind of hair. was special. They were all <laughs> special. <laughs> okay. Do you guys think we have time for BSC big five? We could try to do one quickly. Yeah. We haven't done one in a few weeks. And one thing that I, I had to think about with this is, you know, now we have Mel and Jesse on board. So I want us to start thinking about some Mal and Jesse subscales here. Yeah. We don't know a ton about them yet. So we know that Mallory is practical and level-headed. Um, and we know that Jessie likes to tell jokes and is a dancer. So we can assume that she's physically apt, apt, ept, physically adept. That's the word I want. Um, no, apt we know that it is correct. Okay. Physically apt. <laughs> I hate you a lot Um, (laughs) anyway (laughs) okay so this is from shay um and she i I checked pronouns so we can use pronouns um she wrote in a bunch of facts for us so should i just read it to you guys really quick or Mm -hmm. do you guys want to yeah read read the highlights she always loved school, excelled as a student. She says was in gifted and talented programs and probably really annoying to people. And thought school was always very important. <laughs> Teachers adore me, at any rate. Still have embarrassing dreams about finishing homework. Was all involved in everything, more in high school than in middle school. Tons of clubs, sports, extracurriculars, and actually enjoyed middle. Uh, sorry, actually enjoyed high school, even though I wasn't pretty or popular. Had less of a good time in college and had trouble making friends. But I've been a teacher for eight years now, so I still love school. Mm-hmm. Um, Says she's sort of a mix of leader and follower. In elementary and middle was more of a leader and more extroverted. Um, And then Ickley, looking back, probably because she was a girl, started becoming more of a follower in high school and beyond. Still sort of fighting back towards being more of a leader. Very introverted now, but a totally different person when I'm with my class as a teacher or librarian and with my husband. Lately, I've been trying to take more of a leadership role in my community and in social justice initiatives. Not really interested in fashion at all. Go for comfort and price points with an eye toward at least stand, not standing out for wearing terribly unfashionable things. <laughs> As a middle schooler, I was a bit more into fashion, wanting to look cool, but having no idea how and no budget to make this happen. Once I became an adult, I cared less and less and less. During quarantine, I've barely changed out of gym clothes and pajamas. At work in the real world, I wear flats, pants, and a plain shirt each day for simplicity's sake. I don't really try trends unless it's years later and things are almost out of style. <laughs> I don't wear any jewelry except my Fitbit and wedding rings and have worn makeup twice since March. Got my period somewhere between 13 and 14 in 8th or ninth grade. I have no memory of this. Wasn't regular until I went on birth control at 17 and have been on the same birth control since then. We really got to stop talking
1: shit about people who don't remember when they got their first period. It's
0: very common, I guess. It turns out. I think it must be a California thing. She's been a serious boyfriend kind of girl since high school, quote unquote, dated boys in middle school, but was pretty late with first kisses and first other things, fell into things really hard and easily, intensely and unrequited often. I called myself a stalker. (laughs) I had a quote unquote girlfriend that I didn't know what that really meant until years later when I realized I was bisexual all this time. Had relationships with both men and women, but only seriously dated men. I had several serious boyfriends as a high schooler and a 20 something. I re-met my husband when I was 27. We'd gone to school together, but we're never friends. We started dating, moved in together a year later, got engaged almost another year later and then waited three more years to get married. Um, and they're in the process of becoming foster parents. Congratulations. And thank you, Shay and Shay's husband. Um, that's awesome. And then honestly the babysitters club in all its glory is my biggest hobby. I collect the books, still read them all the time, buy and collect all kinds of paraphernalia. Um, and then she sent a picture of her corner of stuff and then, um, she's, really likes to read middle of several books at once and started more seriously trying to write her own novel during the pandemic. Oh, that's Ooh. a little, that's a little Mallory in there. Oh, I um, was getting strong Mal vibes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like to run and hike, especially in national parks, road trip, travel as often as you can, watches a few select TV shows. Oh, Emily likes to organize things, um, mm-hmm. sit outside on the porch, play with dogs and, ca- and kids, listen to podcasts and music and watch sports um dabble in cooking baking rock climbing trivia and solving rubik's cubes mm-hmm. i'm getting strong christy vibes i feel like christy could have had a like
1: a bit of leadership retrenchment as a teenager and like mm-hmm. would would like struggle with the need to not want to like be terribly untrendy, but then as you grow into yourself, kind of care less and less about that. Like, I think that mm-hmm. that to me would be an arc that would make sense, right? Like, we're getting Christy the middle schooler who's like, Who the fuck cares? And you could see maybe feeling like her feeling mounting pressure to care and then coming into herself in, as an adult and being like, Never mind, fuck it, let's go back to not caring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I get that. I, I hear that too. I was thinking a little bit of Dawn also. Mm-hmm. In terms of like social justice and being outside, yeah, um,
2: and not knowing when she got her period, right, <laughs>
0: right. That's an automatic Don piece.
1: Yeah, I think the leader follower mix is also Donnie, and I think there are ways oh, yeah. like where Don and Christy kind of like butt heads in mm-hmm. moments where Don's like choosing. Okay, is this a moment where I'm gonna like? You know, put my foot down and establish myself as a as a person who can lead, or do I just like take a backseat to somebody who I know has no problem taking mm-hmm. over stuff?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's very Donny.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm not really hearing much Claudia.
2: Mm-mm. Yeah, not getting a lot of that.
0: Do 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 we think any Claudia? I mean, the junk food is mentioned. Excelling at school.
1: Yeah, no Claudia tropes, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting many Claudia subtleties either.
0: Okay, and then same with Stacey. Although
1: I know. will say, like, I don't know, do we, want, do we think that Claudia's, like, mooning over, you know, her crushes from afar, kind of, like, mm-hmm. wades into unrequited uh, love that's territory? True.
0: That's true. Yeah, Claudia. Know. But Stacy also falls really hard. That's true, yeah. Like, so maybe, maybe that's, like, small... Stacey. You think more of Stacy than Claudia in that sense? I don't know that we've seen Claudia be a stalker yet. Like Trevor did like her, the the her stalker liked her and Babysitters <laughs> right. on board. Right, right, um, right. I feel like Stacey's more of the stalker. Okay. Right? And I mean, she's and like Stacy's a crazy. good
1: student mm-hmm. and
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Okay. So yeah. maybe no Claudia, but like the where she might ha- be going into Claudia territory, it's really Stacy. <laughs>
0: right. That's what I think. And then I do think there's strong mal vibes, yeah, and we're still going to have to figure out how we how we work them in, um whether it's a subscale or whether we're going to you know give them their own kind of percentage alongside the other babysitters. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I think the teaching and the writing mm-hmm. um and the practicality all is pretty high mal.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think probably they like as we learn more about them, they can just appear. Alongside the other babysitters, right?
0: Okay. And then um, the serial monogamy is a Marianne trait as well as reading. Mm -hmm. True. Um, And, I mean, I guess they all like to play with kids. Mm -hmm. But, oh, the sports also props up the Christie vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas that is not a Marianne. But she does like cooking and baking, which I think is more of a Marianne thing.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm getting to me. It's like Christie's the strongest, then Don, then Mary or no, then maybe like Don a little bit more Mal than Marianne Mm -hmm. and
0: then Stacey and then no Claudia. And Mm -hmm. what about Jesse? I feel like we just don't know much to say about Jesse unless someone explicitly says, like, I'm a ballet dancer and I like jokes.
1: Right, right, so
0: far, and we'll, we'll know yeah, because more everything about else that they've own voice.
1: right, everything else that they've elaborated about Jesse has been by way of calling attention to her similarities with Mal. So, like, like I guess as far as we know so far, or what we uh, based on what we know so far, things that are Mallory are could also apply to Jesse, but they're not. There's not anything that's like Jesse specific and unique yet. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So, so is it a Mal slash Jesse subscale so far? yeah let's yeah yeah let's do that (laughs) and then we'll separate them out as we go okay Mm -hmm. so quick percentages what how what percent christy what do you think ann
2: 85
0: 90 yeah 87 (laughs) 90 seems a little high yeah i think 85 yeah Yeah. um and then dawn like a 75 i was gonna say 70 okay mal mal slash jesse 65 60 i was gonna say Mm -hmm. lower lower okay what Mm -hmm. do you think annie
2: only because we're not going on much here. Um, I would say like 40.
0: Oh, I think it's more than I that. I think stronger. Yeah. And a writer.
1: Yeah, because I think both with both Mal and Jesse, right, like their foray into the babysitting club mm-hmm. is born of a lifelong love of kids, What even though it was sort of forced on them, right? Like they, they're both mm-hmm. the oldest of like several siblings, but they like don't resent that. They're So I think that like kids' dogs playfulness thing yeah. is really a yeah. thing for both of them. 55? Pretty strong. Pretty
0: strong. Yeah. Okay. Marianne? I'd go for 40 there, Anne. That I don't know. Good. Or do you think less? Okay. I think that's good. And then like Stacey ten or fifteen? Yeah. Which one?
2: Um Yes. Let's say twelve.
0: <laughs> okay. Great. And then zero Claudia. I think so. Okay. Are we right. missing anything? Any Claudia? I mean, there's no there's no crafting or art at all other than like writing is an art but that's the only yeah. one and that's not the one that Claudia is going to choose
1: oh I guess that's one way one thing we don't know about Jesse yet right like we know that Mal is a writer and we know that Jesse loves books but like ha- having any interest in writing is not necessarily something that we've seen for Jesse yeah
0: yeah, but yeah, but we can goes. separate those scales out with some more nuance as we we'll, yeah. after we have a Jesse book. All right, Shay, we know you're a really big BSC person, so I hope that this is satisfying to you. We're giving you 85 Christie, 70 Dawn, 55 mouse slash Jesse, 40 Marianne, 12 Stacy, and zero Claudia. Let us know if we got it right or wrong. Tell us I what love, your loved ones think. I love when Anne throws out numbers <laughs> and they're <laughs> not zeros or fives.
2: <laughs> Speaking of
0: Claudia, Annie, any, any candy in this book? I don't really remember. Much. Uh, there's only
2: one mention of licorice and that was it. Oh, so what
0: about tallies as? Yeah. I, I want to talk about them because we're going to have to start expanding. I think for Mal and Jesse, I don't know what their tropes are going to be yet, but we get uh, Claudia's sophisticated Marianne shy and sensitive one time each. She does not call Claudia exotic, but this is the first mention of her almond shaped eyes which I know are gonna come up more. So I've I'm started to track that. Then she equates herself with health food and she does call Mallory practical at one point. And I, I kept track, I'm, I'm starting to track practical or level-headed for Mallory from the most recent two books. So I think that's up to five at this point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we still, uh, Shy is in the lead at 21. Mm-hmm. That's the only one to break the 20s so far. The only social justice thing that came up was, um, they, she calls someone demented at some point. Um, I think it might be the Pike girls as they're practicing. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, or maybe it's just um Mal and Jesse becoming demented by them all, having the, you know, practicing mm. over and over again, the Popeye song and the, this is the house that Jack built.
2: Hey, you guys. So that's all. You think my eyes are almond shaped?
0: <laughs> I want you to post a picture on Instagram of you making that, whatever that face is <laughs> that you just made. But yeah, I I think I think they're almond shaped. Mm-hmm. But aren't most eyes kind of almond shaped?
2: No, yours are like marbles.
0: What <laughs> 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 big big glasses? Yeah, like
2: like, like big the, circles. The...
1: Yeah, <laughs> perfectly circular orbs. <laughs> um, <sighs> what was everyone's weirdest line? <laughs>
2: um. There's so many weird lines in this one. Oh, mine was when Karen says a landlubber.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, I had a couple. I really liked when Claudia is giving fake headlines from the Tony Stony Brook News and she says something about giant butterflies demanding Twinkies. Um, <laughs> And like, for some reason, Don thinks that that's written in the Stony Brook news. I, I liked, I liked that that's Claudia's idea of good news. Yeah. Um, and then I also just liked when, um, when they're first coming up with their talents and Margo leaves the room, like, I know something I can do and no one else can do it. And Don looks to Claire and she's like, it's probably the banana trick. I just like that <laughs> sentence on its own. I like that. <laughs> it's very like Arrested Development. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I like uh, UM the line where where claudia's like pageant heads that's what (laughs) um you know what that is um i also like when they're backstage at the show and there's like the the announcer or whatever is announcing who sponsored the show and it's like some hair products for today's youth and christy says what about next week's youth like i just I don't know that that's like a joke Chrissy would make.
0: <laughs> I think it is. I, I thought that was a very Christy joke, actually. <laughs> but I, I I also think it's funny that when um, this is the second time that a hair product with the word dew in mm. it has come up. So we have the Caladews mm-hmm. shampoo from when um, M- Vanessa and Margot shampoo Claire with the sample. And then this was like dew drop shampoo. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I yeah, guess, super weird. Yeah.
2: And has dew on the mind.
0: Yeah. Ew. <laughs> All right. I like probably the banana trick, but I can go with whatever. I mean, Just advocating for my own this week. I'm into that because
2: I I can't do the banana trick.
0: Yeah. Great. What? So how many? How many about uh, both of you? <laughs> how many um, subscribers or Instagram followers do we need to get for you to post a video of you op- opening a banana with your feet? yeah
2: like two million. <laughs> two million. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs>
2: or or maybe just 900.
0: 900 That's a really big gap. Yeah. yeah. 900 Instagram followers will be there really soon. You you're, you're going to you're willing to do that?
2: I mean, I don't I feel like if I do that, we're going to attract the wrong crowd. <laughs>
0: Ew.
2: sorry. It's true. Okay.
0: Are you guys bringing up incels again because I can't I can't anymore. What no. are we in a pizza toast to? Different kind of internet pervs.
2: Yeah.
1: Let's pizza toast to bra burning. Sounds good. I'm down with that.
0: I'm into it. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't expect that. <laughs> Did you want us to fight you a little bit more? Or I mean, I'll pizza
2: toast to bananas. No. no. You
1: want to have the episode title be bananas and also pizza toast to bananas?
0: <laughs> it's a little banana and heavy. Are yeah. you
1: hungry? <laughs> I think I am. I need a snack. Yeah. Okay.
0: So to bra burning?
1: That was just my suggestion. You could suggest
0: something else if you want. No, I liked it.
2: Great. I think it's appropriate for this episode. All
0: right. Pizza toast to bra burning.
2: To bra to burning. To bra burning. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank
1: you, Mark, for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kit. Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook, or find us on our website stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.